0: Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. When we look to the individuals of the same variety or sub variety, of our older cultivated plants and animals. One of the first points which strikes us is that they generally differ much more from each other than do the individuals of any one species or variety in a state of nature. When we reflect on the vast diversity of the plants and animals which have been cultivated and which have varied during all ages under the most different climates and treatments, I think we are driven to conclude that this greater variability is simply due to our domestic productions having been raised under conditions of life not so uniform as, and somewhat different from, those to which the parent species have been exposed under nature. There is also, I think, some probability in the view propounded by Andrew Knight, that this variability may be partly connected with the excess of food. It seems pretty clear that organic beings must be exposed, during several generations, to the new conditions of life, to cause any appreciable amount of variation, and that when the organisation has once begun to vary, it generally continues to vary for many generations. No case is on record of a variable being ceasing to be variable under cultivation. Our oldest cultivated plants, such as wheat, still often yield new varieties our oldest domesticated animals, are still capable of rapid improvement or modification. It has been disputed at what period of life the causes of variability, whatever they may be, generally act, whether during the early or late period of development of the embryo, or at the instant of conception. Geoffroy St. Hilaire's experiments show that unnatural treatment of the embryo causes monstrosities, and monstrosities cannot be separated by any clear line of distinction from mere variations. But I am strongly inclined to suspect that the most frequent cause of variability may be attributed to the male and female reproductive elements having been affected prior to the act of conception. Several reasons make me believe this, but the chief one is the remarkable effect which confinement, or cultivation, has on the functions of the reproductive system, This system appearing to be far more susceptible than any other part of the organisation to the actions of any change in the conditions of life. Nothing is more easy than to tame an animal, and few things are more difficult than to get it to breed freely under confinement, even in the many cases when the male and female unite. How many animals there are which will not breed, though living long under not very close confinement in their native country? This is generally attributed to vitiated instincts, but how many cultivated plants display the utmost vigour, and yet rarely or never seed? In some few such cases it has been found out that very trifling changes, such as a little more or less water at some particular period of growth, will determine whether or not the plant sets seed. I cannot here enter on the copious details which I have collected on this curious subject, But to show how singular the laws are which determine the reproduction of animals under confinement, I may just mention that carnivorous animals, even from the tropics, bred in this country pretty freely under confinement. With the exception of the plantigrades or bear family, whereas carnivorous birds, with the rarest exceptions, hardly ever lay fertile eggs. Many exotic plants have pollen utterly worthless, in the same exact condition as in the most sterile hybrids when on the one hand we see domesticated animals and plants, though often weak and sickly, but yet breeding quite freely under confinement, and when, on the other hand, we see individuals, though taken young from a state of nature, perfectly tamed, long-lived, and healthy, of which I could give numerous instances, yet having their reproductive system so seriously affected by unperceived causes as to fail in acting. We need not be surprised by this system, when it does act under confinement, acting not quite regularly, and producing offspring not perfectly like their parents or variable. Sterility has been said to be the bane of horticulture, but on this view we owe variability to the same cause which produces sterility, and variability is the source of all the choicest productions of the garden. I may add that some organisms will breed mostly freely under the most unnatural conditions, for instance, the rabbit and ferret kept in hutches, showing that their reproductive system has not been thus affected. So will some animals and plants withstand domestication or cultivation. And vary very slightly, perhaps hardly more than in a state of nature. A long list could easily be given of sporting plants. By this term, gardeners mean a single bud or offset, which suddenly assumes a new and sometimes very different character from that of the rest of the plant. Such buds can be propagated by grafting, etc. and sometimes by seed. These sports are extremely rare under nature, but far from rare under cultivation. And in this case, we see that the treatment of the parent has affected a bud or offset. And not the ovules or pollen. But it is the opinion of most physiologists that there is no essential difference between a bud and an ovule in the earliest stages of formation. So that, in fact, sports support my view that variability may be largely attributed to the ovules or pollen, or to both, having been affected by the treatment of the parent prior to the act of conception. These cases, anyhow, show that variation is not necessarily connected, as some authors have supposed with the act of generation. Seedlings from the same fruit and the young of the same litter sometimes differ considerably from each other, though both the young and the parents, as Miller has remarked, have apparently been exposed to exactly the same conditions of life. And this shows how unimportant the direct effects of the conditions of life are in comparison with the laws of reproduction and of growth and of inheritance. For had the action of the conditions been direct, if any of the young had varied, all would probably have varied in the same manner, To judge how much, in the case of any variation, we should attribute to the direct action of heat, moisture, light, food, etc. It is most difficult, my impression is, that with animals such agencies have reproduced very little direct effect, though apparently more in the case of plants. Under this point of view, Mr. Buckham's recent experiments on plants seem extremely valuable, When all or nearly all the individuals exposed to certain conditions are affected in the same way, the change at first appears to be directly due to such conditions. But in some cases, it can be shown that quite opposite conditions produce similar changes of structure. Nevertheless, some slight amount of change may, I think, be attributed to the direct action of the conditions of life, as in some cases, increased size from amount of food colour from particular kinds of food, and from light and perhaps the thickness of fur from climate. Habit also has a decided influence, as in the period of flowering with plants when transported from one climate to another. In animals it has a more marked effect. For instance, I find in the domestic duck that the bones of the wing weigh less, and the bones of the leg more, in proportion to the whole skeleton, than do the same bones in the wild duck. And I presume that this change may be safely attributed to the domestic duck flying much less and walking more than its wild parent. The great and inherited development of the udders in cows and goats in countries where they are habitually milked, in comparison with the state of these organs in other countries, is another instance of the effect of use. Not a single domestic animal can be named which has not in some country drooping ears. And with the view suggested by some authors that the drooping is due to the disuse of the muscles of the ear, from the animals not being much alarmed by danger, seems probable. There are many laws regulating variation, some few of which can be dimly seen and will be hereafter briefly mentioned. I will here only allude to what may be called correlation of growth. Any change in the embryo or larva will almost certainly entail changes in the mature animal, In Monstrosities, the correlations between quite distinct parts are very curious and many incidents are given in Isidore Joffroy St. Hilaire's great work on this subject. Readers believe that long limbs are almost always accompanied by an elongated head. Some instances of correlation are quite whimsical. Thus, cats with blue eyes are invariably deaf, colour, and constitutional peculiarities go together. Of which many remarkable cases can be given amongst animals and plants. From the facts collected by Heisinger, it appears that white sheep and pigs are differently affected from coloured individuals by certain vegetable poisons. Hairless dogs have imperfect teeth. Long-haired and coarse animals are apt to have, as is asserted, long or many horns. Pigeons with feathered feet have skin between their outer toes. Pigeons with short beaks have small feet and those with long beaks, large feet. Hence, if man goes on selecting, and thus augmenting, any peculiarity, he will almost certainly unconsciously modify other parts of the structure, owing to the mysterious laws of the correlation of growth. The result of the various quite unknown or dimly seen laws of variation is infinitely complex and diversified. It is well worthwhile, carefully to study the the several treatises published on some of our old cultivated plants, as on the Hyacinth, Potato, and even the Dahlia, etc. And it is really surprising to note the endless points in structure and a constitution in which the varieties and sub-varieties differ slightly from each other. The whole organisation seems to have become plastic, and tends to depart in some small degree from that of the parental type. Any variation which is not inherited is unimportant for us. But the number and diversity of inheritable deviations of structure, both those of slight and those of considerable psychological importance, is endless. Dr. Prosper Lucas's treatise, in two large volumes, is the fullest and the best on this subject. No breeder doubts how strong is the tendency to inheritance. Like produces like is his fundamental belief. Doubts have been thrown on this principle by theoretical writers alone. When a deviation appears not unfrequently and we see it in the father and child, we cannot tell whether it may not be due to the same original cause acting on both, but when amongst individuals apparently exposed to the same conditions, any very rare deviation due to some extraordinary combination of circumstances appears in the plant. Say once amongst several million individuals and it reappears in the child, The mere doctrine of its chances almost compels us to attribute its reappearance to inheritance. Everyone must have heard of cases of albinism. Prickly skin, hairy bodies, etc. appearing in several members of the same family. If strange and rare deviations of structure are truly inherited, less strange and commoner deviations may be freely admitted to be inheritable. Perhaps the correct way of viewing the whole subject would be to look at the inheritance of every character whatever as the rule. And non-inheritance as the anomaly. The laws governing inheritance are quite unknown. No one can say why the same peculiarity in different individuals of the same species and in individuals of different species is sometimes inherited and sometimes not so, when the child often reverts in certain characteristics to its grandfather or grandmother or other much more remote ancestor. Why peculiarity is often transmitted from one sex to both sexes or to one sex alone, more commonly but not exclusively to the like sex, it is a fact of some little importance to us that peculiarities appearing in the males of our domestic breeds are often transmitted either exclusively or in a much greater degree to males alone. A much more important rule, which I think may be trusted, is that at whatever period of life a peculiarity first appears, it tends to appear in the offspring at a corresponding age, though sometimes earlier. In many cases, this could not be otherwise. Thus, the inherited peculiarities in the horns of cattle could appear only in the offspring when nearly mature. Peculiarities in the silkworm are known to appear at the corresponding caterpillar or cocoon stage, but hereditary diseases and some other facts make me believe that the rule has a wider extension, and that when there is no apparent reason why a peculiarity should appear at any particular age, yet that it does tend to appear in the offspring at the same period at which it first appeared in the parent, I believe this rule to be of the highest importance in explaining the laws of embryology. These remarks are of course confined to the first appearance of the peculiarity, and not to its primary cause which may have acted on the ovules or male element in nearly the same manner or in the crossed offspring from a short-horned cow by a long-horned bull. The greater length of horn, though appearing later in life, is clearly due to the male element. Having alluded to the subject of reversion, I may here refer to a statement often made by naturalists, namely, that our domestic varieties, when run wild, gradually but certainly revert in character to their aboriginal stock. Hence it has been argued that no deductions can be drawn from domestic races to species in a state of nature. I have in vain endeavoured to discover on what decisive facts the above statement has so often and so boldly been made. There would be a great difficulty in proving its truth. We may safely conclude that very many of the most strongly marked domestic varieties not possibly live in a wild state. In many cases, we do not know what the aboriginal stock was, and so could not tell whether or not nearly perfect reversion had ensued. It would be quite necessary in order to prevent the effects of intercrossing, that only a single variety should be turned loose in its new home. Nevertheless, as our varieties certainly do occasionally revert in some of their characters to ancestral forms, this seems to me not improbable that if we could succeed in naturalising, or were to cultivate, during many generations, the several races, for instance of the cabbage, in a very poor soil, in which case, however, some effect would have to be attributed to the direct action of the poor soil, that they would to a large extent, or even wholly, revert to the wild aboriginal stock. Whether or not the experiment would succeed is not of great importance for our line of argument. For by the experiment itself, the conditions of life are changed. If it could be shown that our domestic varieties manifested a strong tendency to reversion, that is, to lose their acquired characteristics, whilst kept under unchanged conditions, and whilst kept in a considerable body so that free intercrossing might check, by blending together any slight deviations of structure in such case, I grant that we would deduce nothing from domestic varieties in regard to species, but there is not a shadow of evidence in favour of this view, to assert that we could not breed our cart and racehorses, long and short-horned cattle and poultry of various breeds, and a succulent vegetables for an almost infinite number of generations will be opposed to all experience. I may add that when under nature the conditions of life do change, Variations and reversions of character probably do occur. But natural selection, as will hereafter be explained, will determine how far the new characters thus arising shall be preserved. When we look to the hereditary varieties or races of our domestic animals and plants, and compare them with species closely allied together, we generally perceive in each domestic race, as already remarked, less uniformity of character than in true species. Domestic races of the same species also often have a somewhat monstrous character, by which I mean that although differing from each other and from the other species of the same genus, in several trifling respects, they often differ in an extreme degree in some one part, both when compared one with another. And more especially when compared with all the species in nature to which they are nearest allied. With these exceptions, and with that of the perfect fertility of varieties when crossed, a subject hereafter to be discussed, domestic races of the same species differ from each other in the same manner as, only in most cases in a lesser degree than, do closely allied species of the same genus in a state of nature. I think this must be admitted when we find that there are hardly any domestic races either amongst animals or plants which have not been ranked by some competent judges as mere varieties and by other competent judges as the descendants of aboriginally distinct species. If any other marked distinction existed between domestic races and species, this source of doubt could not so perpetually recur it has often been stated that domestic races do not differ from each other in characteristics of generic value. I think it could be shown that this statement is hardly correct, but naturalists differ most wildly in determining what characters are of generic value, all such valuations being at present empirical. Moreover, on the view of the origin of genera, which I shall presently give, we have no right to expect often to meet with generic differences in our domesticated productions. When we attempt to estimate the amount of structural difference between the domesticated races of the same species, we are soon involved in doubt from not knowing whether they have descended from one or several parent species. This point, if it could be cleared up, would be interesting. If, for instance, it could be shown that the greyhound, bloodhound, terrier, spaniel and bulldog, which we all know propagate their kind so truly, were the offspring of any single species, then such facts would have great weight in making us doubt about the immutability of the many very closely allied and natural species, for instance of the many foxes inhabiting different quarters of the world. I do not believe, as we shall presently see, that all our dogs have descended from any one wild species. But in the case of some other domestic races, there is presumptive or even strong evidence in favour of this view. It has often been assumed that man has chosen for domestic animals and plants, having an extraordinary inherent tendency to vary, and likewise to withstand diverse climates. I do not dispute that these capacities have added largely to the value of most of our domesticated productions. But how could a savage possibly know when he first tamed an animal? Whether it would vary in succeeding generations, and whether it would endure other climates. Has the little variability of the ass or guinea fowl, or the small power of endurance of warmth by the reindeer, or the cold by the common camel, prevented their domestication? I cannot doubt that if other animals and plants, equal in number to our domesticated productions, and belonging to equally diverse classes and countries, were taken from a state of nature, and could be made to breed for an equal number of generations under domestication. They would vary on average as largely as the parent species of our existing domesticated productions have varied. In the case of most of our anciently domesticated animals or plants, I do not think it is possible to come to any definite conclusion, whether they have descended from one or several species. The argument mainly relied on by those who believe in the multiple origin of our domestic animal, is that we find in the most ancient records, more especially on the monuments of Egypt, much diversity in the breeds, and that some of the breeds closely resemble, perhaps are identical with, those still existing, even if this latter fact were found more strictly and generally true than seems to me to be the case. What does it show but that some of our breeds originated there four or five thousand years ago? But Mr. Horner's researchers have rendered it in some degree probable that man sufficiently civilised to have manufactured pottery existed in the Valley of the Nile 13 or 14,000 years ago, and who will pretend to say how long before these ancient periods savages like those of Tierra del Fuego or Australia, who possess a semi-domestic dog, may not have existed in Egypt. The whole subject must, I think, remain vague, I may, without entering on the details, state that, from geographical and other considerations, I think it is highly probable that our domestic dogs have descended from several wild species. In regard to sheep and goats, I can form no opinion. I should think from the facts communicated to me by Mr Blythe on the habits, voice and constitution, etc., of the humped Indian cattle, that these are descended from a different aboriginal stock from our European cattle and several competent judges believe that these latter have had more than one wild parent. With respect to horses, from reasons which I cannot give here, I am doubtfully inclined to believe, in opposition to several authors, that all the races have descended from one wild stock. Mr Blythe, whose opinion from his large and varied stores of knowledge, I should value more than that of almost anyone, thinks that all the breeds of poultry have proceeded from the common wild Indian fowl. In regard to ducks and rabbits, the breeds of which differ considerably from each other in structure, I do not doubt that they all have descended from the common wild duck and rabbit. The doctrine of the origin of several domesticated races from several aboriginal stocks has been carried to an absurd extreme by some authors. They believe that every race which breeds true, let the distinctive characters be ever so slight, has had its wild prototype. At this rate there must have existed at least a score of species of wild cattle, as many sheep and several goats in Europe alone, and several even within Great Britain. One author believes that there formerly existed in Great Britain 11 wild species of sheep peculiar to it. When we bear in mind that Britain has now hardly one peculiar mammal, and France but few distinct from those of Germany, and conversely and so with Hungary, Spain, etc but that each of these kingdoms possess several peculiar breeds of cattle, sheep, etc. We must admit that many domestic breeds have originated in Europe. For whence could they have been derived, as these several countries do not possess a number of peculiar species as distinct parent stocks? So it is in India, even in the case of the domestic dogs of the whole world, which I fully admit have probably descended from several wild species, I cannot doubt that there has been an immense amount of inherited variation. Who can believe that animals closely resembling the Italian Greyhound, the Bloodhound, the Bulldog, or the Blenheim Spaniel, etc, so unlike all wild Kennedy, ever existed freely in a state of nature? It has often been loosely said that all our races of dogs have been produced by the crossing of a few aboriginal species but by crossing we can only get forms in some degree intermediate between their parents. And if we account for our several domestic races by this process, we must admit the former existence of the most extreme forms, as the Italian greyhound, bloodhound, bulldog, etc. in the wild state. Moreover, the possibility of making distinct races by crossing has been greatly exaggerated. There can be no doubt that a race may be modified by occasional crosses, if aided by the careful selection of those individual mongrels, which present any desired character, but that a race could be obtained nearly intermediate between two extremely different races or species. I can hardly believe. Sir J. C. Bright expressly experimentised for this subject and failed. The offspring from the first cross between two pure breeds is tolerably and sometimes, as I have found with pigeons, enough. Extremely uniform, and everything seems simple enough. But when these mongrels are crossed, one with another, for several generations, hardly two of them will be alike, and then the extreme difficulty, or rather utter hopelessness, of the task becomes apparent. Certainly a breed intermediate between two very distinct breeds, could not be got without extreme care and long-continued selection. Nor can I find a single case on record of a permanent race having been thus formed.